0: Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast. A bi-weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 85, Reeking Revenge. Yeah, so revenge. What's that all about, Jonathan? <laughs> well, revenge What's is- What's the deal uh, with revenge? <laughs> uh,
1: as light as we're going into this, this is gonna get really dark. Um, So, yeah, I mean, we don't have that much to kind of, like, set up revenge stories. Everyone knows what revenge is. It's something bad happened to you or someone very close to you, usually a family member. And you want payback. You want uh, some kind of karma. I mean, this tale is as old as Homer in the Odyssey or, like, Hamlet or kind of Monte Cristo. There are so many great revenge stories out there um, that it has just, like, in one way or another... Almost all plots kind of have some like light element of revenge to them. There's usually something that happened that causes someone else to do something. Um, there's very often, you know, something bad happens, so you want something bad to happen to the person who did something bad to you or to someone that you love. Um, so, I mean, I guess we could kind of break down what that looks like uh, that we're going to see in all of the movies today. So you kind of start off with uh, your protagonist – and we're going to see a couple different ways that you can set up this character. You can either see them at the point when things are good in their life before things go bad, and then there is the inciting incident, the thing, the bad thing that happens, they're left for dead, they're imprisoned, they're uh their family members killed, whatever, and whoever did it gets away. So the rest of the film is a journey for the protagonist to go find whoever did it and uh, do whatever seems best for them, whatever seems fitting for the thing that they did. Um, and along normally the way... Normally death. Yeah, normally death, uh, especially Public in these really extreme examples... <laughs> especially in these extreme examples that we've picked out today. It's Sometimes character Yeah, yeah. Sometimes there'll be, like, kind of a, a change of heart by the end. It'll be kind of an emotional journey. We get a little bit of that uh, today, but... Not too much. Mostly, we have picked films that are like, these are characters who are solely motivated by revenge. They have one goal in mind, which is to kill the person who either tried to kill them or killed someone very close to them or tried to kill someone very close to them. So, Or (laughs) that they think tried to kill someone
0: very close to them. Uh, So, what are those films, Alex? Well, first up is going to be one of uh, my personal favorites, Lady Snowblood from 1973. Um, which is a Japanese film. It's based on a manga series of the same name by Kazuo Koiki. Um, and it is... And hopefully you've watched the movies. We've gone over this a billion times. Please watch the movies before you listen to the podcast. Otherwise, um, we can't guarantee that we won't spoil things. Um, yeah, but there will yes, be spoilers this is, today. This is a huge influence on Kill Bill. Obviously, Kill Bill is, is Quentin Tarantino making what he's doing his own thing. But... If you watch this movie, it's very hard to not go, oh, that's that's Kill Bill, like 20 years yeah. before Kill Bill happened. Um, and, and we'll have plenty uh, to talk to uh, talk, talk about when we get to that film section. So
1: then we have uh, Christopher Nolan back on the podcast, which I'm super stoked about. Memento from 2000, based on a short story called Memento Mori by Jonathan Nolan, which I found the transcript of. uh, It was actually like printed in Esquire, and you can find that online. So I'll post a link. Um, The film was nominated for Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Editing. It's also uh, Nolan's, basically his breakout film, because he had directed a feature film following, which we talked about way long ago on the podcast on our Christopher Nolan episode, so go check that out. But this is the one that kind of put him in the mainstream um, and got his productions bigger and bigger and bigger from there.
0: And finally, we will be talking about The Revenant from 2015. This one was fairly recent and a fairly big deal when it came out. Um, so it's probably yeah. still lives in a bunch of people's memories. Um, it is based in part on Mark L. Smith's 2002 novel of the same name describing the actual real life or supposed real life um, <laughs> of somebody who did live, maybe not lived as large as uh, the tales say, of uh, Hugh Glass, who was a real person, and a real front- frontiersman in 18- 1823. Um, And this, at the Oscars, won for Best Actor, um, in which Leonardo DiCaprio finally got his gold. Um, Yep. Best Directing and Best Cinematography, um, Outstanding Cinematography, which we'll talk about. Um, And then, of course, it was also nominated for a bunch of awards, a bunch of awards, including (laughs) Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, Best Film Editing, Best Costume Design, Best Makeup and Hair, Best Sound Mixing, Best Sound Editing, Best Visual Effects, and... Best production design. So what critically acclaimed, out the wazoo. I want to say that
1: this was Inaritu's second best director in a row, um, and I think it was I think it was Chivo's third back to back cinematography with uh, Gravity and something else. Uh, but anyway, those those two have
0: been kind of on a hot streak lately. Well, the whole um, the whole uh, Three Amigos club. With um, yeah. uh, all three of them, plus all three, all of their like associated um, working partners and crew and uh, talented artists that surround them have all just been wiping up the Oscars yeah. this decade. So, I, I mean, I think when we look back, we might be like, we might say this is the emergence of um, Mexican-American cinema.
1: Yeah, yeah, and to be clear, that's um, Inaritu, Guillermo del Toro, and uh, I don't know why I'm blanking. I want to say Emmanuel Lubezki, but that's the cinematographer what? who often works with all three. Um, but I've totally blanked on the other guy. He is great, though. And we talked about... Cuaron. Yeah, that's right. Um, and we Curan. talked about them back in our uh, Mexico episode, also quite a long time ago. So go check that one out. But now let's move on uh, to our revenge tales jason set us up for lady snowblood
2: lady snowblood from 1973. in meiji era japan a deathly ill female prisoner gives birth to a baby girl naming her yuki for the snow falling outside and swearing her to a future of blood and revenge as a revenge demon not so long ago this woman her husband and her small son had been attacked by a brutal set of bandits. Her husband and son were mercilessly killed, and she was raped by three of the four bandits. Later, she managed to kill one of the bandits, resulting in her arrest and her current jail sentence. With her dying breath, she asks her cellmates to raise the child to avenge her and her family. Now twenty years old, Yuki has become a deadly assassin going by the name of Lady Snowblood, trained by a fighting master, raised by her mother's cellmates, and aided by a rebellious reporter. Snowblood begins her long journey of revenge, pursuing her targets all over Japan and even beyond the grave when the need arises. Raised with a singular purpose to avenge a group of people she's never met, will Yuki's skill and drive prove enough to fulfill her bloody destiny?
0: All right, Jonathan, let's talk about Lady Snowblood. Several questions, several big questions. Obviously, there's the Kill Bill elephant in the room. Um, But before we get to that, I had seen this movie before. Multiple times and the sequel, and I love both of them. What was your impression? They're so they're pretty different. Yeah, I watched them
1: um, both like on the same day, or one day apart, or something. And they're they're pretty different. You know, honestly, you could just end Lady Snowblood where it ends and never pick it up again. But it kind of like turns into something else, which is also quite fun um, in the second one. But the one that we're talking about today is, you know, it is purely revenge story from start to finish we open with um, <clears throat> Yuki's mom giving birth in this super dramatic like really dark and gritty prison setting with these uh inmate slash nurses all in red kind of surrounding her and she's like this child is born to be my vengeance I literally only conceived this child in order to uh, take revenge on me and so we're like okay I know what this movie is we are here to uh just kick some butt, and so we then we see Yuki um, kind of growing up, and she learns about the what is it? Is it four or five
0: people that she has to? Uh, kill? There's initially four people, but one of them is killed um, by the mother before the mother dies. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and she um, is literally. I mean, she's literally sworn to be an Asura demon, which is a demon yeah. of revenge. Yeah, which. <laughs> Keeping that in mind was kind of like the one like little
1: string of plausibility I had going through some of this cuz I was like oh my gosh like literally nothing stops this person but I'm like well she's kind of just this demon that only exists to kill. Yeah. Um, but I okay so we got to talk about just like, again, from the beginning, we have the structure of the film laid out and it kind of follows those beats. We have the protagonist. We know what their purpose is. We know who they have to kill. So as we go through, we can kind of check them off the list. Um, and there's one really big bad guy. And the nice touch of this movie is that we think he's dead at the beginning. Uh, and then it turns out that he's not. So we're just like, oh, good. We have another uh, another check to uh, put on our list. Um so the whole time, we know exactly what we're doing, and we're just kind of going through this sequence of events, and each, each of the uh, bad guys kind of gets their comeuppance in a different way, and there's some collateral damage um, along the way, so it was kind of a nonstop kind of thrill ride, and honestly, my, so my first impression of this, I think, was, I haven't seen Kill Bill in a long time, but I was like, I think Tarantino's movie might be the, le- the less gory of
0: the versions, uh, yeah, no, because that's this movie totally is true. so bloody. It's very bloody. Yeah, and no, this is this is peak um, what I think of as like an Alamo Drafthouse movie. Like this is yeah. the type of movie they love, and they include a lot of the these this um, this era of filmmaking on pre rolls. Even even like when Avengers is dropping, like their pre rolls include like '70s movies that are um, Avengers style, um, but with the same kind of aesthetic of kind of like this cheesy pseudo-low production, but very creative cinematography, a lot of fog, a lot of um, crazy, fantastical situations, and in this case, in particular, a lot of Technicolor blood. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's like a extreme version of a Chanbara film, um, which obviously we've already talked about on our um, Samurai and Sobrero series we love, um, and in this case we also love as well. Um, but, yeah, so... Obviously Kill Bill isn't entirely inspired, isn't entirely a copy of Lady Snowblood.
1: Yeah, there's but a lot of other influences that go it into is,
0: it. It is. It is I mean, if you were going to pick of all of the influence that went all of the influences that went into Kill Bill, if you were going to pick one that formed like the spinal structure onto which various kinds of meats from other... I don't know why this is getting so gross. Various kinds of meats <laughs> from other movies uh, were uh, attached to to make the rebirthed beautiful Frankenstein that is Kill Bill. Um, oh, gosh. I, I would pick Lady Snowblood as being the, the backbone. For yeah. sure. I mean, the the if, the revenge checklist, basically. There There's revenge yeah. to be had um, and there's so many people that you've got to pick and then there's like an individual fight with all of those people Um, And it becomes, revenge is basically like what brings this person back to life, um, so to speak. Like it's in Kill Bill and in Lady Snowblood, um, it's not quite the same. And I think that's the most interesting part of this movie when you take a step back from all the gore and the blood is you have um, a woman whose entire life has been devoted to revenging people she is related to, but basically doesn't know. She didn't meet him. Um, Her brother and her father died before she was born, and her mother died giving birth to her. She doesn't know any of them personally. She is just told and has been filled with the belief that revenge is her one purpose in life. And you can see her struggle with it as she goes through and starts to be exposed to other things other than revenge, like the um, journalist who... Um, starts to be involved with helping her on her revenge quest, you can tell she's starting to develop some sort of feeling, maybe a slight attraction to him, and it's something in her life that suddenly isn't devoted to revenge, and it starts to shake her to her core. Um, And there's like this question of that dedication over the course of the movie.
1: Yeah, no, I I really like the journalist character and that aspect to it. Um, And I like the way that he's introduced, too, because... For the first uh, quarter slash half of the film, uh, we have this narration that's kind of uh, walking us through everything that Yuki is doing. And it's like really dramatic, too. And uh, then we realize, oh, this is the story that this journalist guy has been writing that then becomes sensationalized so everyone knows about it. Um, And then he gets dragged into the story, too, and we find out that he is the son of uh, the big bad guy uh, that she has to confront at the end but he doesn't he doesn't hold the same uh he doesn't want to be in the same criminal thing so she's still or he's still her ally um so I thought that that was a really nice um touch and I also I kept thinking um honestly throughout this film I kept thinking of princess bride quotes uh, specifically inigo Montoya like I felt like her being so dedicated to killing these people Um, that by the end of the movie, it's, it's like what he says at the end of Princess Bride, where he's like, I've been in the revenge business so long that now I don't know what to do with myself. Um, and I feel like that's a really interesting aspect to revenge that isn't usually the most interesting part. So it's not usually explored that much. Um, apparently in the sequel, the answer is become a mercenary. Um, but they had a yeah, hot also, property.
0: A movie studio will <laughs> not turn down a hot property, Jonathan. Yeah, I know. But don't try to take it personally. Also, as far as the um, as far as the story is is concerned, it's also nice that there was only two. Um, I will say that. Um, well, you're right. Some of those uh, some of those Japanese Chambara films can really go. <laughs> they can really uh, go. Have you ever watched to- the? Um, oh, the what's it called? Uh, the Zatoichi films. No, not yet. All twenty-six of them. I will watch a couple of them one
1: day, but I don't know that I'll ever. You should get watch to all, all of, them. of them for sure. I'm sure it's probably a much better uh, use of time than the twenty-eight Godzilla films.
0: Uh, well, I've done both, so I mean, yeah. if we're passing, <laughs> if I have if to pick one, I'll
1: go with Zatochi.
0: If this is if this is the episode where we finally pass judgment on um <laughs> on Alex's movie watching habit, uh then I think we can maybe just in the podcast because that's, <laughs> I mean, that's a big part of the fuel that goes into this thing. Yeah. We'll, we'll deal with that later. Um, <laughs> it's okay. Criterion channel is back. There's so many movies to be watched. Oh yeah. So I, I kind of want to talk about the tone of this movie
1: because it's really interesting. It has like a lot of obviously super dark themes, um, basically hello you raped my mother prepared to die again that was another quote that I was thinking of through this entire movie Mm -hmm. um but uh the this the place where this movie lives in like the late 1800s gives it this really interesting blend um kind of like we were talking about with the long goodbye I feel like where the world is moving on it's moving uh, the police have guns, some of the bad guys have guns, but she pretty much only uses her sword, and several of the other characters still use swords. So it almost feels like this, bringing these uh, Chambra films from like the uh, the Seven Samurai time period into a more modern time period, and those two clashing uh, ways of fighting and stuff were really interesting. Um, especially whenever she goes after the uh, the woman bad guy, forgot her name, but um, and she's getting shot at, and she still chases her down and has one of the most epic uh, sword kills ever. Um, and uh, so I thought that that was a really interesting aspect. That you know, it it kind of felt strange at some points, and especially when kind of the funky jazz music started coming in when the police are chasing her at the end. Um, but. Overall, it still kind of worked like it was really dark and intense, but it also had a little bit of like just fun to it.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, it's very serious. It's very dark. But at at its core, like it kind of knows its origin as a entertaining, schlocky, a little schlocky B movie (laughs) of the 70s. And so it doesn't lose that entertainment value. Um, Which is very refreshing to see in a movie which has a surprisingly salient point on one of the world's most um, or one of the world's oldest motivations Um, is a movie that doesn't lose its sense of fun or its sense of entertainment along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as far as that point that it's making I feel like and I feel like we came at some of these movies from a little bit of a different perspective but I feel like this one kind of gets to this place of just showing the completely destructive and self-destructive nature of revenge because by the end Yuki is not in good shape Uh, she ends up surviving to make it to another sequel Um, but you know it took a big toll on her um, and it took a toll on the family of the people that uh, she was getting revenge on as seen in The Daughter of uh, That One Guy. And also... Of That One Guy. The, uh, <laughs> I love that we don't know any all, of their names.
0: All the bad guys are just like that that one person. The they big give one. us our name; their, their names like once up front and then they're mentioned yeah. maybe a couple times later later on.
1: Here, I, I got it pulled up. Some of their uh, names are actually pretty interesting though. Like um, Bonzo. Bonzo. Bonzo was a fun one. Yeah, that's actually who it was. His daughter um, comes back and, like, again, this, this whole <laughs> episode Yuki. is very stoil- spoilery. Yeah. yeah, Yuki's, like, bleeding out, walking away from her, her final revenge, and Bonzo's daughter comes up and just, like, stabs her in the stomach, like doing nothing, and then just runs off, which I thought was another interesting aspect because, you know, he's she has created this other... Uh, revenge motive in The Daughter of Bonzo um, and the journalist even comments on that he's like, uh, revenge begets revenge or something to that effect um, but her revenge is really pathetic um, to, the, to the extent that Yuki's revenge is incredibly epic and dramatic and all of that, uh, Bonzo's daughter is really just kind of there is like okay, she stabbed her. I hope you feel better, but yeah, it, it felt like it was not it felt epic like at all. she was
0: making an attempt, to like, oh, this is the thing you do when you have revenge. It was a very yeah. emotional uh, attempt at revenge and it was abandoned very quickly. Um, and and you know, she didn't have the training for it, that was just an emotional response. Uh, whereas Yuki is like this driven freaking terminator professional, who yeah, she's has a revenge professional, trained to revenge, avenge. Revenge? That's actually a good question. Revenge? Sorry, that was totally unrelated. Apparently, avenge is the verb form of
1: revenge as a noun.
0: Ah, so so you can't say somebody somebody revenges, you say somebody avenges. Yes. In their quest somebody avenges in their quest for revenge, the noun. Indeed. Ah. We probably should have looked that up before we started this episode. The grammarlings. I'm um, hundred. I'm hundred percent. I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure that we have said the grammar links on the film links before.
1: Oh yeah. Okay, we got to talk about the color also because I feel like this film. Can we put this film like in the category of neo noir because I feel like it has so much going for it in that direction that the only I thing like, kind of standing in its way is the time period. Yeah. Yeah.
0: No. I would say if she was wielding a gun, it would be noir. Yeah. and Dwarf. some of the characters are wielding guns again. But yeah, no the, uh, the 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 color, the use of the technicolor here is great. It's like those colors that are almost a little too real to be actual colors. Like the yeah. white just pops so much, and the red. Which is pops a weird thing to say. So much, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but they do a good job using that main theme of red and white. I mean, Lady Snow Blood, Snow. Yeah, exactly. Blood, white, red. Um, and of course you know they do a good job of just manipulating the scenes to to make everything with color pop like one of the beginning um, action set pieces where she attacks um, Bonzo well or not Bonzo who's the guy who faces death that one um, in a rickshaw near the beginning she walks up with her umbrella sword completely surrounded in white and you can tell it's not on yeah. location it's a set but
1: uh, and in, in that scene, matter. she has a purple umbrella.
0: Yeah, she does. And that's before we've seen her kill anybody. Um, yeah. But later on, we don't really see her associated with purple very much.
1: Yeah, there's there are some times. Because um, the, the interesting thing is, though, the dress, I, I'm not... Sure, with the technical word for the, the dress that the women wear in the Japanese films uh, that are set in this time sometimes period.
0: Sometimes it's like a kimono, but there's also yeah, like it's different like a names kimono, for them. Like, but I don't know I know, know, what know there's different names for them. I'm just not versed in it. Right, so it's like a kimono, but it
1: also has this uh, really wide waistband. Um, and the interesting thing is that they, they'll kind of coordinate that part of her costume, and there are times when that part of her costume uh, harkens to the color of her umbrella. So, for example, she often will have an umbrella that's, like, black with a red stripe around it, um, and that's basically the same costume that she wears when she's a child and she's training to kill. Um, I don't. She never is actually, like, wearing a costume that exactly corresponds to the umbrella, but often the colors, like... Um, will harken back to other scenes um, in in a really interesting way that just kind of, like, associates her with her weapon of choice.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. And I love the I love the work they do in this film to make it seem like she's a hidden danger. Like, they definitely play with the concept that nobody sees uh, a woman as a threat in this time period and yeah. probably, honestly, in the 1970s as well. Yeah. Um, even though that's untrue and lady snowblood like proves it. Um, her sword is hidden in her umbrella. She's always wearing, um, a dress when she goes to attack somebody. So everybody is more willing to let her get close. And then she strikes from, from like this hidden position, which gives her an advantage. I mean, even some of the, some of the, the peasants who were screwed over by the main villains in this movie and kind of help get her gather information and, tell her where these people are located to help her uh, seek her revenge or avenge her revenge, as we found out. Um, <laughs> uh, at one point, like, circle her and act like they are about to rape her. And she whips out her sword. And yeah. quickly, quickly the, the boss peasant steps in and puts an end to all of it because her, her his men are being misogynistic, he uh, aggressive idiots. Um, and he knows her. So, but that's just another example of kind of like that hidden, deadly aspect that they have going on yeah. with this character and this whole film in general. Yeah. There's um, a very the silky dagger weapon. thing going on.
1: Yeah. And the other secret weapon that she has is she's got a little bit of a touch of Zen in her. Uh, occasionally in the fight scenes, she just like pulls out a Woosha flip where she just will like launch herself. Um, which is another thing that kind of just adds a, a lighter touch to all the all yeah. the fighting and stuff like that because it's just so out there.
0: Yeah, and it kind of it kind of like also signals like this uh, slight evolution in the genre of Chambara, which back in the fifties and sixties with like Kurosawa and Mifune did not have those flips. But as uh, kung fu films, Wuxia films gained popularity through the late sixties into the seventies, especially with King Hu, uh, Touch of Zen. Um, so on and so forth, uh, the Dragon Inn, uh, you start to see that leak into other fight-based genres. And you see here with Chambara, obviously we see it with modern action films with, like, The Matrix, um, but it's it's interesting to see that, that spread of one thing from one genre into other genres until it becomes, like, an inherent part of those other genres.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, with that, from a revenge checklist let's move on to uh just figuring out what the heck is going on in memento jason set us up
2: memento from 2000 having lost the ability to retain any short-term memories leonard shelby's story is accordingly told out of order in one part his story moves forward as he answers a mysterious and unexplained phone call divulging the story of himself and his life or at least the parts he can remember He uses the story of Sammy Jenkins, another man with the same condition, to explain his odd behavior and resetting memory. He goes into depth, telling the story caller all about his extensive system of notes, tattoos, and Polaroids that keep him functional within society. This is intercut with the other half of the film, which flows in reverse order between the points where Leonard's memory resets. Here, Leonard is on the hunt for a man who killed his wife, and who is also apparently responsible for Leonard's messed-up memory— He is either aided or hindered by a shady and highly suspicious man named Teddy and a manipulative woman named Natalie. Both Leonard's and the audience's perception of truth and reality bend over the course of the story. Will his intricate system of memory manipulation lead him to his vengeful goal, or will he make himself the fool in the process?
1: Okay, Alex. It's been a while since I watched this movie, and it still blows my freaking mind the way that this film is structured. Um... Because it should not be possible. You should not be able to tell one story forwards and backwards at the exact same time, have the ending be in the middle of the chronological sequence of events, and still hit all of your narrative beats in the time that they need to come to keep the audience interest uh, at its peak at all times.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it it seems crazy, but I mean... It just kind of goes to show that the emotional beats of a movie don't necessarily match with the story beats of a movie. It's the blending yep. or the mixing or, in this case, the odd separation, like a kid who doesn't want the various uh, dishes on his plate to touch um, of those of those elements that make them significant or insignificant. Um, and in this case, it kind of serves to set a tone and develop this character and show a weird order of progression and in a way kind of just show him contradicting himself, which is like this underlying theme of the whole film. He trusts himself so much when really he can't prove that he can be trusted.
1: Right. He spends so much time trying to decide if he can trust everyone that he meets at any given time that he never stops to wonder how much he can trust himself. Even though Teddy is constantly saying, You don't even know who you are. You're spending so much time trying to figure out who this other guy is, but you haven't spent any time trying to figure out yourself, uh, which becomes really, really important as we go through. Um, and again, we're going to have some like super major spoilers for this movie. So uh, pause us now if you haven't watched it and go check it out yeah, for no, you. Especially IMG. this
0: one. I mean, I can, <laughs> yeah. I, I typically, I think spoilers are a little overrated, but. In this case, it it is the whole movie.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, literally every scene could
0: spoil the next one.
1: Right. Um, So, yeah, so I kind of want to talk, just kind of like break down the way that this works because we've got... um, So the the kind of rules that Christopher Nolan has sort of set for himself as far as editing this is in the quote-unquote present time, which is moving backwards, the color time, uh, you start a scene and you move to the end of it and then the next scene will start farther back and end at the beginning of the scene that we just saw. Um, and so we're kind of always Hope that oriented. that makes sense to you. <laughs> right. So we're kind of, by the time we get to the end of the scene, we're somewhat oriented into the rest of the sequence of events. Um, yeah. And in, in between those, we have the black and white sequences which are all moving forwards. Um, but... The really nice thing is that half of the black and white stuff is like really, um, it's not like we have a bunch of story development happening. It's actually a story being told for the most part. So that's the other element that goes into this. Yeah, there's like a story within a story. Right. So the black and white sequences have flashbacks that go to before the actual main story. And we're posting on the, uh. The Twitter account, uh, the socials this week, um, uh, kind of an 18 minute video where Christopher Nolan breaks down the story, which is incredibly useful and like super yeah. genius. So <laughs> you're going to want that. Go check that out. You're uh, definitely I'll post it in the blog that. post too. Um, so he kind of explains how there's there's our main story, and then there's flashbacks that happen before that. But we have two arms of the main story. He draws his hairpin, and so we're seeing two different parts of the story jumping back and forth between them. Um, but for for a while, we're just hearing uh, our main guy, uh, Guy Pierce again.
0: Uh, we saw him last week. Do you know how long week, it took me to realize back? that it was Guy Pierce in this movie? <laughs> for the longest time, I thought it was Brad Pitt, and that makes no sense.
1: Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's funny. No, I always get uh, Guy Pearce and Lee Pace mixed up for some reason. No, I understand. I understand that. Um, But yeah, so he's telling a story about someone else who also had this short term memory thing. Um, So that kind of, you know, puts a little bit of it, like, gets a little bit of the science. what's going on to us so it makes everything feel believable and it's also kind of this really sympathetic story and those beats are kind of building um until we start to have questions in the black and white sequence like who's he actually telling this story to over the phone and um what is this story actually about and by the end we're like is this story like even real did this ever even happen so there's so much manipulation of everything i mean we've got narration through guy pierce's head but the narration is like incredibly subjective so you can kind of put that in the noir category but noir narration is almost always kind of uh omnipotent
0: yeah and
1: in this case it's is inherently not, in not. <laughs> oh no nothing very is omnipotent in this importantly
0: yeah yeah, yeah. I, I must say jonathan it was a very interesting i've seen this movie several times obviously as like a film student you end up watching this movie a lot um but it was very interesting to watch it in the context of revenge. Um, I think a lot of times this movie gets focused on for its plot structure for a good reason. Um, right. And there's a reason we're talking about that. Um, C- Christopher Nolan obviously talks about, and you'll see if you watch the 18 minute vi- uh, uh, video we're gonna post, that uh, he, he t- he's very interested in the ways in which you can develop a character out of order. Um, And still, kind of create this fractured picture of a person and bring it together. But I thought it was very interesting to put it in the context of revenge Um, because it makes a really strong point about it. um, Yeah. Without that, I didn't really notice before because essentially, the the point of the revenge has been totally lost. Right. Like he. Right. It's a. a It just is it's revenge. A- it doesn't matter what kind of revenge is in him anymore. It just is revenge. That's the only thing keeping him going. That's why he writes his notes. That's why he thinks he has his his shit together when he doesn't. That's why he um, he keeps living day to day rather than like checking him into himself into like a mental institution. Is this idea that he still has this revenge to fulfill, um, and he's found this way to manipulate himself into continuing that revenge cycle just to continue his own existence. Like, whereas Yuki in Lady Snowblood was born into revenge and starts to grow out of that by the end of the movie. And um, she accomplishes it. There's an end to that revenge. She does. She does. In this one, it doesn't matter whether or not the revenge ever is, will be, was, and it's a little fuzzy, uh, accomplished in, 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 uh, in this man's life. That just is his character now. The revenge has replaced his life. He has gone from being a human to being a revenge demon alone. And yeah. basically not much else.
1: Yeah, it, it gets to this point where he just needs the feeling that he needs revenge on his wife. Because every his time... Wife's killer. And this, yeah, on his wife's killer, sorry. um, And again, this is... Uh, Another part of the self-deception is um, every time that he does get revenge, he's going to forget it like that. It, in some sense, like there's there's something interesting to be said about how revenge is a very temporary feeling. Like once you have achieved it, it may feel good for a time, but then you kind of have to live with yourself afterwards in Memento, he doesn't have to live with himself afterwards because he's going to completely forget it. It's not like, okay, I had that like catharsis, this happened, it, it was good, I'm satisfied now. That can never happen because he, he always feels like he has to still get revenge because that's the only thing he remembers. And ultimately, uh, as we come to find out, he is his own wife's killer. And so in some sense... This is like his revenge on himself by forcing himself to go through this over and over and
0: over again. Yeah. Um, by like and it's chiseling also, away at every part of him that made him human. He, yeah. Yeah.
1: There's nothing left it except gets real. For, this is a really dark movie. <laughs> it is so really, dark. It gets darker really the more dark. you think you about know, it. He.
0: Yeah. He lives, he lives constantly in anticipation and- um, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, uh, especially because one of my favorite bands just dropped an album that plays a lot with this idea that the funnest thing or the most enjoyable thing is typically the anticipation of something, Um, whether it be the anticipation of a first date or the first, uh, the anticipation of achieving a goal or the anticipation of avenging your revenge. Um, but once you have it, you're kind of, it's, it's, it's not quite as enjoyable as you built it up to be, but he's tricked himself into living in this, into this space where he's constantly in that anticip, anticipate anticipatory stage. Yeah. He's constantly Even when he achieves it. feeding on that excitement of it and has found a way to make it an infinite loop. Um, which is, I mean, that's just a very Nolan thing right there. Um, but it's scary to see that <laughs> apply to a human.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and the little things that just kind of like make it work plausibly is this idea that like the one set of the clues that he has as far as the identity of the person is John G. And even this tattoo says maybe James. So there are so many John or James G's that could exist in the world that, you know, you get you you were satisfied with the fact that he could go on this search forever and never run out of uh, people to uh, avenge himself on. Yeah, um, he's just become a serial killer. Yeah, but Best the Best episode thing is, of
0: Criminal Minds ever.
1: <laughs> but the other thing is that um, it also gives the people who are taking advantage of him ample opportunity to do so. Um, Because that's another thing that puts us in the noir category like we talked about last time. Uh, He is the sap. He is the sap on two angles um, from both Teddy and Natalie's perspective. And it's so genius the way that Christopher Nolan kind of builds that up because he has us questioning which one we're supposed to believe the whole time until we realize we shouldn't be believing either of them. They are both playing him against each other even though they've never met. Um, And it's it's awesome the way that we do that because we start with the one clue. Don't trust Teddy's lies. Okay. We don't know how he got that note. We don't know why, but there's always this like, really there's this thing in the back of his mind that's telling him not to trust Teddy. And the same thing is going for the audience. Um, Although at some point, Teddy starts to feel much more trustworthy than Natalie, because at some point we see Natalie literally turn around and lie to his face. um, And he doesn't know it because he doesn't remember. Um, But, Teddy is actually telling him the truth, but that one little note is making him distrust everything. Until we realize that that note was made by himself in order to just get payback on
0: Teddy. Uh, yeah, he like it he is, purposely manipulates himself in that moment. It's so oh gosh, oh man. And and here's the worst part, Jonathan. He does it because he he knows he can do it in this really big way because he's got this memory thing going on, but we. We all do that of some sort yeah. of another. We all tell ourselves something or or force ourselves to think something or assure ourselves of something or um, oh, what's, the, what's the word? Um, rationalize something to make ourselves do something that probably isn't the right thing or probably isn't healthy or probably is just going to end up hurting ourselves in the end. So it's like a devastating moment when he does that because I see, one, it's just terrifying to see a character... Mentally self harm in that way, and two, it's like shockingly relatable because everybody, yeah, everybody does it. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's another big thing that I think Christopher
1: Nolan gets into in that eighteen minute interview is this movie transcends noir. It transcends this kind of gimmicky. Uh, you know, tell a story in reverse thing, which would be so easy to pull off a short-term memory film that goes backwards and actually works, and it's like, oh, wow, that was so cool. But it actually, like, is about stuff. It's about human nature and the way that we want to forget the bad parts of ourself. Um, and in this crazy way, uh, Guy Pierce is able to always forget the bad parts of himself and only remember the parts that feel good and justifiable, like I'm trying to catch my wife's killer. Um, but he gets to kind of coddle this really dark part of himself, which is um, I am the killer. I'm trying to get revenge on myself. Like he, like getting that fuel is something that he can always justify to himself because of his wife's death. So he's got this really dark part of himself that he is um, fostering while also forgetting that he is the cause of it at the same time. It's There are so many levels to this flipping
0: movie. Yeah, no, it's really good. It's uh, And I, um, I almost feel like it suffers from its own success in a way um, because, you know, again, like I was saying a, a minute or two ago, this film is typically researched and studied and taught because of its plot structure and the fact that it pulls it off and tells a really interesting, entertaining story and still manages to make sense. But there's this deeper level there that I feel like gets missed by people who are just taking a one-time pass at it. Um, Yeah. So let this be be your wake-up call. If you haven't, go back and study Memento another time. If you've yep. like seen it 10 years ago and you were like, yeah, I saw it, that's good, and now you're watching it, listening to it on the podcast, um, go watch it again. Even if you just watched it last week, go take another look, get deep in it, and then you know apply it to your own life. Don't trick yourself, people. And the movie actually also comments
1: on uh, stories and twists and knowing the ending and that kind of thing. Uh, when we have the flashback of his wife reading the book, and he's like, why are you reading that again? Don't you already know the ending? Isn't the best part uh, discovering the the parts that you don't know? And she's like, no, I think that makes it better to go back and rewatch. And I think that's kind of almost a comment on the movie itself because you can feel like, oh, yeah, okay, I got it. I know what happened at the end. But when you watch it again, you you just pull more out of it, and you get into those deeper layers that are more than just the gimmicky –
0: Backward storytelling parts. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think that's what keeps it from being a gimmick. Right. Because it could so easily just be like a kitschy, kitschy, like fun movie that's that's playing with this. And it would count as like a sci fi B movie and yada, yada, yada. But it's got so much meat on its bones. I'm just going with meat and bones today, Jonathan. Sorry. (laughs) It's got so much meat on its bones that it keeps it from being cheap. It's one. there's a reason why it's up there with the the best movies ever made. And it makes the AFI top 100 repeatedly. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it's one of the reasons that I keep going back to Christopher Nolan, especially his original stuff or at least uh, original stuff written with his brother um, because it's so inventive and um, it's able to be incredibly creative while also being very meaningful and thoughtful at the same time. Uh, And I put this in my notes today or for this week, I was thinking like, um, Christopher Nolan does twists just as much and as well I would probably say better than M. Night Shyamalan but he's not known as the twists guy because he makes the stories so good that you don't he, get to the end and you're like oh yeah the twist was the point it's, yeah, that's not he's the not,
0: point that's a part. <laughs> yeah cause he's not a one trick bunny oh gosh I said that
1: oops. <laughs> uh, oops we'll do an M. Night Shyamalan episode one day
0: will we? Um, maybe <laughs> <laughs> um I don't know. You'll we'll have to wait and see. Here's the twist, Jonathan. We've already done one, and you just don't know. Uh, uh, oh, my gosh. We just I erased it might, from our memories. might believe that. <laughs> what if we have?
1: That'd be crazy. Oh, gosh. All right. Well, we've geeked out about this movie long enough. If you can survive through this episode, then you can get to The Revenant. That was my terrible transition. Jason, take it away.
2: The Revenant from 2015. In late 1823... Hugh Glass, an Anglo-American fur trapper, and his half pawnee son, Hawk, work as hunters, guides, and scouts for a fur trading company near the Rocky Mountains. Just as the company prepares to bring their furs back to Fort Kiowa to be transported east, they are attacked by an Arakera war party. The very few survivors, including Glass, Hawk, the Captain Henry, and trappers John Fitzgerald and young Jim Bridger, scramble onto a boat and escape down the river. Against Fitzgerald's wishes, the party proceeds over a rough mountain course to avoid further Arakara attacks. On this journey, Glass is brutally mauled and ripped to shreds by a grizzly bear, barely surviving. Recognizing the need to continue to the fort at a good pace, the captain asks for the men to stay behind with Glass and keep him safe while the rest continue on. Hawk, Bridger, and Fitzgerald do so. Through a series of lies and contrived circumstances built by Fitzgerald, Hawk is separated from Bridger and murdered. Then Bridger is convinced of an impending but unreal Arakara attack, going along with leaving Glass immobile and weak, half-buried in a shallow grave. As Fitzgerald and Bridger make their way back to the fort, Glass raises himself from the grave, not quite dead yet, nearly mute and seemingly fueled solely by revenge. This revenant makes his way across the beautiful and deadly American West. Along the way, he encounters the Arakara, who are only looking for the chief's kidnapped daughter the French traders, who happen to have kidnapped that daughter. Herds of buffalo, packs of wolves, a fellow Pawnee survivor, and a spiritual journey that delves into his motivations for living after all that he has lived for was stripped from him. Is the driving force of revenge enough to take glass through a perilous journey and end what an immoral and cutthroat man has started?
1: Okay, Alex. This movie is another one that um, pulls off something that should not be possible. Uh, and that is the
0: wide-angle close-up, which is basically what the entire film is, is <laughs> built on. I love the wide-angle close-up. I just like wide lenses in general. I like them for everything. I like wides for wides. I like wides for mediums. I like well, wides for close this is the for movie for you. I love it. <laughs> because
1: them. Chivo, Emmanuel Lubezki, also known as Chivo, I don't know why, um, his cinematography is great. And, for, okay, so here's the deal. We're going to get a little technical for a second. When you're using a wide-angle lens, uh, you can think of what everyone knows as is like fisheye. So GoPros have an extremely wide angle uh, of view because they want to get as much in the frame as possible. But that also gives you this fisheye effect. So everyone kind of knows what that looks like if you've seen any GoPro footage ever. If you've um, ever seen like a skateboarding video. Yeah. But the deal with the fisheye lens is that when you put it up really close to someone's face, it makes them look really ugly. Their nose like sticks out and their head gets all bulbous and stuff like that. So the rule of thumb is to not use wide angles for close ups when you're getting really close to an actor's face, unless you're doing something really uh, kind of like trippy and out there like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the classic example. Um, But somehow Chivo pulls off in this movie these really beautiful, gorgeous, wide angle, anamorphic shots where you have one character's face super close to the camera. There's often um, another character in the background in some kind of like a um, unconventional two shot. But the point of using the cameras in the way that they did for this film in particular is to show as much nature as possible because... Um, the land and the landscape is a huge part of kind of just, just the backdrop. It's never like a big theme. It's, it's a little bit, but for the most part, it's just this really subtle, um, subconscious element that they want to constantly have these really gorgeous. We want the other thing about wide angle lenses is, is that it gives you deep focus a lot easier. So deep focus is when everything is in focus in the frame, um, or nearly so, um, so that means that if we've got someone really close to the lens and we've got mountains in the background, they're both in focus. Whereas with pretty much any other kind of lens, you're going to throw those mountains or those trees or whatever out of focus and just focus on your one character. But the way that the, that the film is shot with this deep focus, with this wide angle, makes all of our characters and all of our action just feel like a part of the landscape and the nature throughout the whole thing.
0: Yeah, and, I mean, the... Right... Okay, how do I want to get at this? So, the the main drive of the movie, once the revenge starts, because it actually takes, like, a good third of the movie before the... Yeah, we gotta talk about that, too. The avenging really gets in the gear. Um, but once it starts, it's kind of like he's entered another world. Like, it's not like the 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 it's not like the nature changes too much like obviously like he gets attacked by a bear before he quote unquote becomes a revenant um he but it's almost like he goes on like this spiritual journey when he's going through the revenge like he's a spirit that's been brought back to life and is traveling through this hellscape this beautiful hellscape of (laughs) like colorado Um, trying to survive and everything around him is dangerous and might kill him um, and is oppressive and surrounding him. Um, And every time we see him, it's like he's in a slightly different world. Like he's put into this wide lens and surrounded and engulfed by, by this world around him as he's on like this spiritual revenge journey. Um, I might be reading too much into that but that is kind of just like how I like to how I like to imagine this movie is that he comes back to life purely as a revenge demon and maybe afterwards he just collapses and dies
1: yeah yeah and you can definitely get that sense um, and I just want to point out that this film was shot like all on location in uh, Canada some in the US and also Argentina um, and the other thing is This film was entirely, uh, almost entirely natural lighting. There's like a couple scenes where they actually like created lighting, which I assume was on the indoor scenes in those little cabin shots. But for the most part, it's all natural, which is incredible. Um, But yeah, I do want to talk about um, the way that we build the revenge tale, because in our first two movies uh, today, we're kind of thrown into the revenge part after the... The stuff that happened that needs avenging has already happened, and we got to learn that through flashbacks and through different uh, reveals. In this one, we get to take some time to actually learn who Glass is, who his son is, who uh, Fitzpatrick is. Fitzgerald? Fitzpatrick? I kept mixing that Fitz- up. Fitzgerald.
0: Uh, Fitzgerald, that's right. Yeah. He's not that Irish. Um, I know. It's, they're both very Irish, <laughs> but like Fitzpatrick <laughs> is slightly more Irish. I don't know why. Yeah. Um, so, yeah,
1: we get to we get to like learn who Fitzgerald is, which is a really nice part of this movie because in the other two, we just have to kind of take it on faith that the people who did the bad thing are just all completely bad people. We actually get a little bit of sympathy for one of them in uh, Lady Snowblood because he's just a slobbering drunk and you kind of feel bad for him. Um, but in this one, we're just like, okay, Fitzgerald is just a really terrible, selfish, uh, conceited dude um, who doesn't care about anyone except getting his money and his pelts and his land in Texas or whatever. Um, So we get to build all that up. And then when Fitzgerald stabs Hawk, we're like, okay, come on, Glass. Get your butt up there and go track this guy down and kill him. So we're like on board with it because we've taken the time to build sympathy for those characters. Um, Not to say that one or the other is better for a revenge story because obviously like in Memento, we're not thinking so much about how we don't know who the guy is and stuff because we're trying to figure out so much of the story anyway. Um, But this one is a really good way to uh, get us solidly on the protagonist's side so that we can spend like an hour and a half watching him sludge through the snow and the freezing cold water and sleep inside of a horse carcass and stuff like that.
0: Yep, 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 yep. Leonardo DiCaprio slept inside of a horse carcass. (laughs) That's how he got his Oscar. Um, Real quick, Jonathan, just because this was a bit of a hot topic when it went down, uh, I want to ask your opinion on this. Um, Okay. Everybody was very happy to see Leonardo DiCaprio get his first Oscar. Yep. Um, a lot of people said this wasn't the movie for which he deserved it most. Um, do you agree or disagree? Um, a lot of people said like his work in Wolf of Wall Street was way better and should have won the Oscar that year. Um, obviously yeah, Inception's so I, is a good candidate.
1: Yeah, and, and I understand that... Um, We've talked about this on the on the podcast before. Neither of us are like that attached to the actual Oscars. We kind of use them at the top of all of our episodes just to kind of show the general public um, reception of the films that we cover. But in general, the rule of thumb that uh, I tend to go by is that Oscars show the quote-unquote most of whatever it is. So whoever did the most acting or whatever. And that kind of feels like... That's what this movie is. This is the one where Leonardo DiCaprio had the saddest backstory and like uh, had to do the hardest stuff in order to um, get through the filming and that kind of thing, just by the nature of the character. And also, I think that there is an element to the Oscars where an Oscar will be given for a good film, but as more of like an honorary thing for things that happened beforehand. Like you'll see uh, final films in a really solid trilogy. <clears throat> Lord of the Rings get just a ton of awards that probably all of them deserved. And some of them got some of that credit. But really, by the time the series is over, they're like, all right, we need to acknowledge all of these things um, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I'm, I feel like. Leonardo DiCaprio probably did a better job of, like, building a well-rounded character in other movies. Um, but this one was as good as any, I guess, to give it to him.
0: Yeah, I don't know who he was, was up against that year either. I don't remember. See, that's the thing. Nobody nobody remembers. Um, and I think, I think it's more of a thing of Leonardo DiCaprio has an Oscar rather than Leonardo DiCaprio has an Oscar for The Revenant. And I right, felt which like I was kind saying like of, it's more yeah, honorary. That was definitely yeah, that definitely felt like what the award was. Like, oh that guy really deserves really deserves an Oscar. And this seems like a good one to give it to him for. And this year it wouldn't be super controversial if we gave gave it to him instead of somebody else. So let's do that. Um, right, right. Yeah. Also, you're you're hundred percent right. Like the this backstory of like all of the hard work and like the method crap that uh, DiCaprio had to do or elected to do because that's how he rolls as an actor. <laughs> Not every actor does it um, in order to like get into the frame of mind of the character and like camping out in the woods and actually crawling inside of an actual horse carcass and crap. Um,
2: Eating it, a it bison liver. Makes,
0: yeah. It just makes great press, like really yeah. good press. Like, and don't forget the Oscars are campaigned for. Um, typically the the a movie doesn't just have to be good to get an Oscar. It has to have the kind of financial And Hollywood political backing, um, by which I don't mean like elected officials, I just mean like, you know, important people in the industry, people in the industry with power, producers, executive producers, studio heads, agents, yada, 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 who are are willing to support the movie through a campaign in order to campaign for an Oscar. Um, So instead of just going off of the merit, I mean... They, they literally work to get the Oscar after the movie is made, sending out uh, yeah. press screeners, putting up for your consideration billboards. Um, if you've ever wondered what the ter- phrase for your consideration means, it means, hey, give this an award, please.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and that, I mean, that was another big thing whenever the film came out about like how hard the filming was because they actually went to these super cold places in Canada and Argentina and all this kind of stuff. Um, and like had them slog through freezing cold water and all that kind of stuff, which as a Texas boy, just like, no pun intended, made my blood run cold because I can't even like fathom how cold some of that stuff must've been. Um, but, uh, you know, they pulled it off. They did what they had to do and, uh, it worked out. Um, but I, I do want to get to kind of what this movie kind of talks about as far as, it's point on revenge because I think it's different than the other two, which is why I wanted to include it. It has a little bit of this element that, um, revenge is never totally, um, can never totally be satisfied by human means. So especially when we're kind of working outside of the law, I guess, like we're doing in all three of these. Cause once you bring in like actual, like the way the law actually works, that these movies get a lot messier and they're not as entertaining.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 But there's not like a huge legal presence in any of these movies. And I right. feel like that's there's a little good bit reason. in Lady Snowblood, but they just
1: kind of ignore it. Um, so, yeah, so they have this line that that um, comes up in the middle of the film and then comes back at the end, which is uh, revenge is in God's hands. Um, so it's kind of taking it. It's it's reaching for this point that I think is really interesting, which is that um you know, you're, you're never going to be satisfied with any kind of human form of revenge, uh, no matter what it is. And that's what Tom Hardy says at the end. It's like, enjoy your revenge because it's not going to bring your boy back. Um, this, this point that whatever you do will never be completely satisfactory. So the highest thing that you can do is let it go. Um, I feel like the film could have made the point a lot stronger if it had got to that point before they had this really big bloody battle and you kind of already had that really good bloodlust satisfied. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but but uh, it still like is at least reaching for this point that is a little different than in a lot of revenge stories, which is something that stuck out to me the first time that I saw it when it came out in theaters. Um, and I still think it brings a really interesting angle to the revenge conversation.
0: Yeah, and what do you think about... So, obviously, in the first two films we talked about today, the person seeking the revenge does get to take revenge on the person themselves right um in memento multiple times whatever <laughs> um but in this one uh hugh glass decide doesn't he he wins the battle but he doesn't take the final avenging strike um he lets the river take its course he lets fate decide and by the way yeah. the river is like this great like symbol in the movie of like this driving plot and like this kind of larger spiritual hand that feels like it's guiding everything down river towards this final climactic point. And, uh, you know, Hugh Glass is struggling against it the entire way, trying to survive in the rapids, literally at some points. Um, yeah. and then at the end, instead of fighting against fate, he just kind of lets it happen. And I feel like in that way he gets the revenge happens but without taking more of a toll on his soul than needed to be taken,
1: right, right. And I, again, I feel like that's a really great thing to shoot for. But I feel like the fact that <clears throat> he sends him down the river like a couple yards, and then the Indians uh, kill him. Just like immediately could have been a little bit stronger if he if he had just like let him go, like maybe just left him there with all of his wounds or whatever. Uh, But, you know, at least they were going for something uh, kind of transcending this really basic revenge story. So uh, the other thing to talk about this film in particular is. The survival aspect, because this is just as much a survival film as it is a revenge film, and those two are inextricably l- linked, I think. They're and inextricably this- linked. They're inextricably linked. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little bit of this element in Lady Snowblood, like we said, where um, at multiple points she's like so wounded that she probably should not be alive, but she is pushing through just to get her revenge. But that's basically all The Revenant is. Um like, I kind of wonder, Alex, what do you think about if if Fitzgerald had not killed Hawk, do you think that Glass would have struggled so much to stay alive? Like, do you think he would let himself give up at some point? Um, because it kind of feels like once Hawk died, like, he has to stay alive in order to get back at Fitzpatrick eventually. And that is the only thing that is driving him uh, from the beginning of the film till the end. Uh, and so that's it's. The, the idea that revenge is your sole purpose for living, revenge is your sole purpose for surviving, which is kind of, which is how how it also ties into Lady Snowblood because revenge is literally what she was born for. But in this one, it's uh, revenge is kind of what he was reborn for, if you will.
0: Yeah, yeah. I feel like, um, well, one, I feel like that is a good point. Everybody seems to become like a different person like nearly a different character once they, the burden of revenge is put upon them yeah. um, and especially case, since there's that
1: that revenant aspect to it yeah. where yeah literally the, the, the death title. the death part happens or near death part happens at the same in, moment almost as the uh, yeah and it's as it's, it's interesting
0: that you bring that up about Hawk because uh, Hawk wasn't a wasn't a person in the real life tale of hugh glass hugh glass was just left buried in the woods by uh fitz fitzgerald and bridger and then he came after them seeking revenge Uh, yeah which feels very personal and i get why you would seek that revenge but it doesn't feel nearly as compelling as when this this man who has lost um his entire family is seeking revenge that feels like a spiritually guided near holy revenge mission, um, which is kind of what this movie becomes. But I mean, I mean, it depends so much on the circumstance. Like if, if Hawk like wasn't a character at all, it would, and he went for revenge. I, it would feel a little petty almost like live, but anyway, if, if Hawk had survived, like, I think his priority would be in surviving and finding Hawk. Um, right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Hawk is definitely a very important character, even though he he does die. Right. Pretty early. Very. Honestly. Well, I mean, he makes it through like a solid 40 minutes of the movie.
1: Yeah, he's around for a while, although he doesn't. He, he's mostly there to just kind of reminisce about. uh all the other sad stuff that happened before the movie even started with his mom dying and all that. He's yeah. He's Um, a
0: very, so the movie, the movie is fairly atmospheric obviously because the, um, the setting plays such a big part of the, the film. Um, also the way they shoot it is in very long takes. There's not a whole lot of cuts in this movie. So the action just kind of plays out and they, they, their best obviously in the moment to try to make the timing of the scene work and I feel like the timing of all the scenes does work um, and it's directed and choreographed and shot very well but that does limit the amount to which you can cut time in post if you've shot it all right to be this long series of, of, of shots um, so the movie does have a pretty significant runtime, time and the, the scenes with a, more characters tend to take longer because you're you're trying to rotate the camera between so many people. You have to fit in so many reaction shots and so many um, dialogue lines all on camera at the same time. So the earlier part of the movie where there's like four, five, six, ten characters in the same scene is much bulkier than the later parts of the movie where there's pretty much just glass and maybe one or two other characters in the scene.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, but, I mean, it all comes off. I mean, it's it's technically impressive the way that they're able to do all of
0: those long shots. I can't imagine uh, shooting this whole thing on location. That's just insane. Oh no. That yeah, that sounds crazy. like, I mean like obviously Leonardo DiCaprio probably took the worst of it because he actually had to climb inside a dead horse, but <laughs> can't uh, get over that one, huh? Ah, uh, it's just, I mean, there's some lines I wouldn't cross and I think that's <laughs> one of them. Um, well, I, the, the other story is about the, um,
1: uh the bison liver that he legitimately ate and legitimately
0: puked back up in the snow. <laughs> well, I mean, I'd puke it out too. so I yeah. feel I feel a bit of camaraderie there. Um, but but yeah, I mean everybody, everybody who made this movie who was on location went through went through some shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, obviously that's all real snow. That is all below freezing. Temperatures that they were out in probably 12 to 14 hour long days. um, Probably pretty far from from civilization in order to get that untouched nature look. So they probably had to drive pretty far from wherever base camp was to wherever they went. And then on top of it, typically with this kind of production, anywhere that you can leave tracks, you have to park, make a secondary base camp and then haul all the other stuff over land to get where yeah. you want to go, which is just brutal. So any kind of sand movie you see, any kind of snow movie you, you see, and you're like, why are all the tracks from all of the production people? Um, which you're probably only thinking if you are actually involved in movie production like <laughs> us. Um, that's, they, they had to walk and they had to brush. <laughs> so yeah. in between takes, takes a lot of setup. Um, I mean, even just like, Think about a a shot where like Hugh Glass is walking through the snow. If they want to do that take three times, which is a small number of takes for a movie scene, every time between takes, they either have to reset the scene and move it down like 10 feet to the left in order to get a fresh bank of snow, or PAs have to go in and brush over the snow and fill it back in, which probably means they're shoveling snow from other portions over and then brushing it to make it look natural. Um, so, so, this was a hard production <laughs> to oh, yeah. say the least. And I'm sure there's stuff that we're not even thinking about that they had to go through.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on and just talk about revenge as a whole, or at least as we have seen it in these, uh, three movies. Um, because, uh, you know, as we've been bringing up this, this is like a big part of a lot of movies. Um, Lost stories? probably probably. Bring it up in the future. It is By human a, motivation. Yeah, and it's it's it makes sense. You know, we all have people that are close to us uh, who something bad has happened to them. Probably not as drastically as in these movies. I hope I'm I feel very bad for you if if it has. But um, we we know that feeling of like I have to make this right. I have to get back. And um, the the nature of what revenge is, as far as like um, having to right a wrong that was done, means that there there are there are a limited number of possibilities of what can happen. Something bad has to happen to either you or someone very close to you. Family is almost always the go-to because they are the closest people to you, whether that's a spouse or a child or a mother. Which we see in all three of these films. We have uh, Lady Snowblood, in which. We are avenging the uh, parent. We have Memento in which um, he is avenging his spouse. And we have the Revenant in which he's avenging both himself and his child. Uh, So we've kind of covered the gamut on (laughs) different ways that you... uh, Or different reasons to get revenge. Um, And so that's actually going to be a fun thing to talk about uh, as we move into next time's episode. Uh, But we'll get there. Um, But yeah, I mean... There, there are only a limited number of possibilities that you can set up your revenge story with, and yet there are infinite possibilities of where you can go from there.
0: Yeah, and there's always clever twists that you can put on it. Like, uh, Lady Snowblood, she doesn't know any of the people who she's avenging. Right. Technically, she's fulfilling somebody else's revenge. In Memento, the dude will never achieve his revenge. He's on, like, this sick, sick, emotionally depraved treadmill. Um... And in the Revenant, it's become like this superseding spiritual journey of anger driven, revived, uh, revenge spirits and all sorts of crazy nature and stuff. So it's almost it's almost like a undercurrent. Can we call it a macro genre? I want to call it a macro genre. Yeah, because it doesn't it doesn't like. Can we have an arca genre? Is that a thing? Uh, we're 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 gonna write a book about genre, <laughs> and we're just arc genres, arc genres, um, like it because it because obviously there's certain things that you expect in a revenge movie, a movie based on revenge, and yet it doesn't supersede any of the other like set genres that we think about when we think about production and style. It doesn't supersede western or drama or sci-fi or. Um, fantasy comedy or even anything or comedy yeah there's comedy revenge revenge of the nerds or geeks or whatever it's called um yeah. i just made my dad really mad <laughs> 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 he loves that movie <laughs> he's gonna be mad at me oh well sorry um i think it's revenge of the nerds um but but yeah it's it supersedes all of that and yet it's one of those motivations that um it has certain expectations around it like that. Or, um, I think there's other ones you can call arc genres or macro genres like, uh, greed, um, glory, love, um, so on and so forth. There's lots. <laughs> Basically there. all the seven deadly sins. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Anything that motivates a human really. I mean, that's yeah. what we're driving at. But when you play with the motivation, um, you, you essentially expect different expectations on it. Like when people act out of sadness in a movie, you you expect certain things from them, uh, and yeah, in that repeating expected near tropey kind of way, it becomes like a short sort of genre. Yeah, and I think that the the difference between
1: having this revenge motivation, like within a film so like for example i brought up uh homer at the top of the episode because the odyssey is not strictly speaking a revenge story um but at the very end of the story there is a very strong revenge motive uh once he gets home and he finds all the suitors there
0: um i would also say that poseidon is a hundred percent trying to take revenge on homer during that entire thing Okay, okay that's true but that's that's not like
1: the main thing that we're following. I mean, he's the I antagonist. The, yeah, that that puts that puts uh, Odysseus in all of his situations, but we're we're mostly just kind of seeing what Odysseus does in each of those situations. So, okay, to to an extent you're right. Um, but the difference between that and like um Lady Snowblood is the entire movie is about revenge. Like it's not just one character being motivated by this um or a part of the el- of the film is uh is this having to get karma or whatever um but the whole movie is coded in this aspect of revenge that is what drives the entire plot uh and so that's why we picked out these movies today because they zone in on what it is to get revenge um and the l- the differing levels of satisfaction that can come from that also what happens afterwards? All that kind of stuff. Like that is what these movies are just drenched in, and that's what they're about. So once you have a fi- once you have a film that is like every aspect of it ties back to the revenge element, that's when it becomes a genre, uh, as opposed to being an element of a story or just natural human uh, action.
0: All right, I buy it. Next time on the thesis links. <laughs> We get our MFAs. Yeah. I mean that's basically what we've done in creating
1: this podcast is just giving ourselves homework and research and thesis papers. With for the rest none of, our of life. the
0: student debt. The problem is that uh, it's all improved, so it, it it is, it is. But it counts, I mean, in a practical way. we we know a lot about we know a lot about movies and all of our listeners know a lot about movies. And you don't have yeah. to go into you don't have to take out massive student loans to get there. right uh we we cram just as much as anyone in an mfa Mm -hmm. well talking about arc genres jonathan next time on the podcast we're going to be talking about one involving love but a specific type of love which was voted on by our patreon users so what exactly is next time's uh genre jonathan
1: yeah, so as I alluded to before, um, we're going to be talking about families and different types of family films, and we're choosing a small a small portion of family films. There are a lot of family films out there, um, and so we try to get three that kind of take different different looks at the way that families work and putting them in very different situations and also aiming at incredibly different target audiences so the first one we have royal tenant bombs we got a christopher nolan uh, movie on the podcast so now we're throwing uh alex a wes anderson movie um royal tenant bombs from 2001 uh and then the incredibles from 2004 and third we're going dark with the road from 2009 yeah, you realize so, that The Road is uh, uh, based on a book written by the same guy who wrote No Country for Old Men?
0: Oh, really? Cormac McCarthy. Yep. Yeah. I've heard a lot of good things about him. I hear he does interesting stuff with grammar. He doesn't like punctuation, apparently. Um, but the way he I writes... I think The Road doesn't it, have any chapters in it or something like that. It, yeah, it doesn't have a lot of... Like, it, I heard it doesn't use quotes. Like It's essentially just written in a formatted way that makes it very obvious what's going on without using yeah. all of the trapping traditional trappings of punctuation grammar uh, but anyway as you as you noticed uh, we we're talking about movies that are about family but maybe not necessarily the traditional Hollywood uh, consideration of a family movie um, which for some reason I always think of like as the most recent national Lampoon reboot. Um <laughs> where we're talking about like family comedies, which is just very broad, very basic, uh yeah, mildly like Adam offensive Sandler not super Medillo offensive or something. Yeah, yeah. We're not really talking about those because that's kind of like a studio executive mandated genre in which <laughs> they're they're playing to a very specific slice of the demographic in which it's supposed to be a movie that's fun for the whole family. But rather we're digging into um Apparently, this new idea that we have of arc genres, um, and discussing what it means to to talk about family and what it actually really means to be a family in a movie, um, and different ways to explore that theme and topic um, as we see it play out over several different subgenres or real genres. Um, I don't know. We'll we'll get to writing. We'll figure it out. You'll see our thesis later or something. <laughs> but but just to. to to, to say that we're we're messing around with the idea of family outside of the very broad family comedy aspect. Right.
1: Um, And again, that was uh, voted on by our patrons. So thank you guys so much uh, for all of those of you who are subscribed because anyone who subscribes to Patreon can vote in the polls. There will be another one in uh, about a month or so probably. So if you would like to participate in that and help us pick out a topic, you can check us out on Patreon. Um, If you would like to donate for $5, you can check out our bonus podcast where we talk about Other stuff, still movie-related. Our most recent podcast was about the very first uh, sound-to-film process, so if you don't know what that means, you can go check out our bonus podcast and talk about it. Um, Alex also gives me a really fun quiz about all the movies that we've talked about on the main show. Um, And also stay tuned because we'll have some commentaries coming out soon uh, that we're going to be recording live together, so uh,
0: those will be great. It'll be like... Like, reading our notes live, and Mm -hmm, it'll be awesome. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That also means, because we'll be in the same town, that there is an episode coming up that will be live, um, by which there will actually be video associated with it, and you'll see both me and Jonathan in the same place, in the same time zone, which is a rarity in and of itself. (laughs) Yep. So, looking forward to it. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. If you
1: have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at J.S. Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And I am at the Blue Jay 1994. And to find links to
0: things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right. See ya.
1: And so the rest of the movie is a journey for that character to find the person who, please silence all cell phones now. (laughs) Yep, yep, Um, sorry about that.